Hello, my name is Dan Badger, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Words of Endearment with Bill Coker. For the third prayer in this series, Bill chose the Consecration Prayer from the Gospel of John, chapter 17. Bill preached this sermon at World Gospel Church in April of 2007. Jesus directed this prayer for his disciples, but we are included today. Again, the theme of unity is present, along with the joy about going into the world with the gospel. Now, let's hear from Bill. We're looking now at some of the great prayers of the Bible, have been for a couple of weeks and will be for some weeks to come. Looking for those prayers that give us some insight in how to pray, but also in the the great teachings that come through the prayers. If you have your Bibles with you, I want to call your attention to the 17th chapter of John. This is the great high priestly prayer so-called by Jesus or the Lord's Prayer. Many people will refer to it as that. I've called it simply, as some have, the consecration prayer. And you'll see why as we look at this passage together. John 17, follow along as I read for you. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given to them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know truly that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things are mine, that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. I have guarded them, and not one of them has perished, but the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
the glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love which you, with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Today, of course, as we've been reminded already, is Palm Sunday, celebration of the time when Jesus entered into Jerusalem for the last time. Luke says that he set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem, and from that 52nd verse in chapter 9 of Luke, everything moves toward Jerusalem. And so Jesus had an appointment with a cross and as he moved toward Jerusalem and finally entered into Jerusalem and was celebrated in his arrival, we today remember and we rejoice for that steadfast faith of his and his determined purpose for our sakes. The interesting thing I wanted you to see with me for a few minutes this morning, besides looking at the prayer itself, is that John is quite different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. As a matter of fact, you probably already know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic gospels because they look at Jesus pretty much from the same perspective. Each writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, draws his personal portrait of how he sees Jesus. And so the gospels, while Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very much alike, they are also different because they paint Jesus' portrait from a different perspective. When we come to John, John is so completely different that we recognize that uh, his writing is certainly not conforming according to the pattern of the other three, but according to another type of pattern. And I, I don't have time, obviously, to go through all the Gospels with you at this point, but I wanted to look at what happens on, on Palm Sunday. Jesus enters into the city, and in John 12, you can read the story. In fact, there were Greeks who came to him who uh, evidently gave him an invitation, perhaps to some other place, and he said, now is my soul exceedingly sorrowful. What shall I say, Father? For this cause I came into the world. And, and, and he turns away from what may have been an invitation to, uh, to perhaps another place to share that gospel among other Jews in other places those in diaspora, for, for example. But then something happens in John that's so different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In, in the three synoptic gospels, they all show us Jesus having interchanges with a number of different people. He has teachings that he's giving. He also has controversies that take place between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and himself. And there's a great deal that's going on before finally on that night when uh, they celebrated Passover together, uh, Jesus spent some time with his disciples there. In John's gospel, you discover in the 12th chapter that while he responds to the challenge of what is happening and where he is and so forth, 
It, John says, not that he, he goes into the city and he has all of these conversations and controversies and so forth. Rather, John says, Jesus departed and hid himself. And from that point on, there is no contact with Jesus and the people of Jerusalem. Everything that happens in John's gospel is focused on the upper room. He skips over those days between Palm Sunday and, and uh, the Passover meal together. And, and finally, when we get back to, into the chapter 13, Jesus is with his disciples. His public ministry technically ended with the, his entry in chapter 12. 13, 14, 15, 16, all of this is Jesus with his disciples and in private conversations with them. Last-minute instructions that he was given to them. The comfort that he was providing for them so that when what was to happen would happen, they would not either be amazed or, or whatever, and they were that anyway, but so that they could understand there's a plan and a purpose for it all. Now, what happens in the upper room is, of course, Jesus is with his disciples, and he's ministering to them in preparation, as I mentioned. And in the process of doing that, some things you can pick up as you read these chapters that are fascinating. Eight times, for example. Well, let me back up just for a moment. If you go through John's gospel, you'll notice from time to time, Jesus says to the people, my hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. And he says this on various occasions and so forth. But when you hit the 12th chapter and Jesus' soul is exceedingly troubled and they, what shall I say, save me from this hour? No, for this cause I came. From that point on, beginning in the 12th chapter, John has Jesus saying, the hour has come. Twice more, he says, the hour has come. Actually, he's talking about the hour that has come or the hour that is coming eight different times in these chapters. And it gives you a clue that Jesus is talking to these people about their preparation. He's not now focusing on the world. He's focusing on these men who will carry on the ministry that he began. Now, it's interesting that as he's there in the upper room with the disciples, a number of things happen. He washes their feet, and, uh, and you remember what a humiliating thing it must have represented because Peter himself did not want that to happen to him. Only the lowest of slaves would have bent to such a thing, and yet Jesus washed their feet. And then after that, he revealed the person who was his betrayer, and uh, Judas finally, after that, uh, after that exposure, leaves from the group. And at that point, Jesus begins to give the final teachings that he has at the end of chapter 13. And of course, you know, 14, 15, and 16, he gives all of these teachings about the coming of the Holy Spirit, the preparation and how the, he is the vine, they are the branches, all of this preparing them for the ministry that they are to have. Now, when he gets to the end of this, and he is telling them uh, all along, he has been, that he's going to die. And you can imagine the difficulty that these people had accepting how could this be the Messiah when in Jewish law, cursed is he who dies, anyone who dies on a tree. And yet, Jesus is talking about being crucified. It didn't compute. They had difficulty and they struggled with it. But in these last minutes, as Jesus talked with his disciples and prepared them for what was to happen, and more than that, prepared them for what they were going to be responsible for after his own ministry was closed out. And in the process of all of this, he comes to the end of his remarks 
with that victorious statement, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This was before the cross. But Jesus had already settled in his mind not only the reality of the cross, but the acceptance of it. And yes, he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we can understand the agony. But in his mind, the task was done. Now, before Gethsemane and that prayer that we remember, he prayed, Father, let this cup pass from me. Jesus prays the 17th chapter. And uh, John has recorded, and I'm sure with the help of the Holy Spirit, what represents a summation of most of everything Jesus has said to them in these preceding chapters. He prays for them, and the prayer that he prays is really a prayer of consecration. And we'll see that. Sanctify them, Father, in the truth. I consecrate myself. I sanctify myself that they may be sanctified or consecrated in the truth. Now, in the prayer that he prays here in chapter 17, there are so many things that it would be ridiculous to think that I could preach a sermon on the whole chapter, and I'll not try. But I wanted to call to your attention that if you look at the chapter and read through the prayer, you'll notice that Jesus does, there are four things, four parts to his prayer. He reports to the Father about the completion of his ministry. He's accomplished what he had been sent to do. In verses 1 through 5, you'll find his, his statements about his ministry. And then he reviews that ministry and what was accomplished in the ministry in verses 6 through 8. And then he prays for his, the disciples and their consecration from verse 9 through verse 19. And finally, he prays for those who will believe in him through their word. It is a fantastic prayer, and the theology that is exposed in it is certainly beautiful. I was reading a commentary that has long been one of my favorites on the Gospel of John by uh, Sir Edwin Hoskins. And he had a summation that I thought uh, you needed to hear. But, you know, when somebody reads it, it's hard to follow. So I've asked if uh, we'd have a PowerPoint. And I want you to listen to what... Uh, Edwin Hoskins says about Jesus' prayer. He says, Jesus' prayer is a solemn consecration of himself in the presence of his disciples as their effective sacrifice. It is his prayer for glorification in and through his death. It is the irrevocable dedication of the disciples to their mission in the world and his prayer that both they and those who believe through their teaching may be consecrated to the service of God. And finally, it concludes with a prayer that the church thus consecrated may at the end behold the glory of the Son and dwell in the perfect love of the Father and of the Son. You can see why I didn't want to try to preach on the 17th chapter. This is a fantastic, beautiful prayer recorded by John. What I'd like to do for a few minutes with you and try to be conscious of the time is that there are some things that we glean from this prayer that are so important to us. They're ideas that we can still hold on to today and they speak to us about the essence of what Jesus was saying, not only about the disciples and in behalf of the disciples, but for all who would come to faith in him because of the witness of these disciples and many others. 
So let me give you six things. Uh, we'll not try to, try to take verse by verse, but six things that struck me as I've studied this prayer during this week. The first thing is, of course, the perfection of Jesus' ministry. He talks about it being complete. He talks about it as being finished. It is final. It is something that is done. And there's something in that that I think is important for us to hang on to and important to remind us as well. And that's simply this. If the ministry of Jesus was completed, if it is finished, then what he is saying is that there is nothing more that can be done for the redemption of the world. There is nothing else that will be done for the redemption of the world. When we're going through Corinthians, those of you who have been around, I use the idea of the finality of Christ, particularly as it was expressed in Leslie Newbigin's book. And I mention the fact that what you have in Christ Jesus is actually the most important event in human history. It is not a religious event. It is a secular event. Because it isn't just simply about going to church. It is about every human being. It is about a dividing line that has been drawn before Christ and after Christ in the year of our Lord. And, and when you listen to what Jesus is talking about in his ministry, you have to understand that the simple truth for you and me, as it was for those people of his day, is that God had a plan and a purpose, and he is that plan and purpose. There is no other plan. There is no other redemption. Nothing that we can do or anyone else can do can contribute to that which God has provided. That's a serious thing to state because what it means is that there is only one way of coming into the presence of God, and that is through the gift that he has made of his son, Jesus Christ. There is no other plan of redemption, either by good works that we may do or anything else that may be a part of the church itself. It isn't by our worship. It isn't by any of the things that we might construe as being appropriate for our love for the Lord or anything. No, it is his death on the cross. That cross stands at the crossroads of human history. That cross stands in the center of your life. And the truth is there is no other way. There is no other plan. This is God's love expressed to us, for us, for our redemption. Now, the marvelous thing is that God has given us the ability to accept it or reject it. Marvelous because he recognizes that image of God in, in us and grants to us the freedom to make that kind of choice. But the choice is about one single thing, and that's why Jesus said to the disciples, you know, unless you're willing to take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. There is no other plan. And when we look at our world today and we find various kinds of religions, and I'm not here to throw rocks at people who may worship in a different way or even have their own gods. I'm here only to say that what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, presents is that his ministry was completed in this crucifixion and his resurrection. There is no other plan. This is it. And you and I have the opportunity to respond to that or to reject it, 
but we do not have the opportunity to present a better way or an easier way or whatever we may call it. And so he talks about the perfection of his ministry in the sense of its completion, of its finality. The second thing that he does is he says, I've manifested your name, Father. I've manifested God's name to these people, my disciples. Now, I pointed out on other occasions that the name represents something more than Bill, Joe, John, or what have you. It is not the name Yahweh that he's talking about, or Jehovah, as some may, may see it. It is not about the name Lord or Christ. Actually, it just simply talks about the name of God in the sense of what is the nature and the character of God. And what he's saying is that I have shown them who you are. I have revealed you to them. So that, in essence, he's saying, look, anyone who wants to understand what God is like or who God is, I am the presentation. He says to his disciples in that room during this time, you who have seen me have seen the Father. If you want to know who God is and what he is like, I am here, I am revealing him. Father, in truth, I have manifested your name to them. And speaking of the name itself, look what he does four times in this prayer. He refers to God as Father, twice only as Father, the third time as Holy Father, the fourth time as Righteous Father. What he's doing is basically pulling back the veil, the mystery that surrounds the eternal God and saying to us, not that we can behold him, not that we can comprehend him, but this is the nature and the character of who he is. So we look at this with great joy because in the love that Jesus expresses to mankind and to the extent with, to which he was ready to go for your redemption and my redemption and then to turn to this God who has sent him and say, Father, tells us more than we can, we, it tells us more than we can comprehend in and it of itself. Father. And of course, you know, Jesus used the word Abba, the Aramaic word the common street word of a, of a child for his father, daddy. There is an intimacy that is offered in Jesus' prayer itself that reminds his disciples who were there with him that this one to whom they are addressing themselves, and he in particular now is addressing himself, this one is a father. The love of God is made so clear in just simply Jesus' relationship with people and in the way that he addresses God and teaches us who God is. He who has seen me, Jesus said, has seen the Father. And so we look at this prayer, and as we listen to Jesus praying, it strikes us that this Father is a, is, is a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of caring and concern. Now, that's important to me because it seems to me that there is no relationship with God without understanding the very character and the nature of God himself. Because how can we draw close to him unless we understand that one to whom we draw close? He is the Father. He is a God of love. And it's only as we come to him in the sense of who he is and, and uh, the character that he has 
you know, we could stop at this point and just take the whole Bible and go all the way back to Genesis and right through those law books, as we call them, of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and find again and again no God who is any different than the God that is represented by Jesus in John's Gospel. Everything that God had done with the Israelites down through the centuries had been intended so that they could know that which is right and good and they could follow the path that he had set. There is no other God, he said to the Israelites again and again. And the relationship that we would have with him is a relationship that is based upon his character, upon his nature. And Jesus says in his prayer, I've given them the words, and they have received them. And he has manifested God in those words and in his actions so that we can behold him. And you know, you listen to this 17th chapter, and, and if you read it again and again, it, it begins to come through that everything that Jesus is saying represents not simply himself, it represents the very nature of the God who has made us. He has manifested God, but only to those that God has given him. I paused on that one for a while because that, what does that really say? Father, I've, I've given the truth to those that you have given to me. Does that mean that, uh, and he says, I'm not praying for the world, I'm praying for these that you have given me. Does that say, and there are those who certainly strongly believe that only those who are saved, only those are saved who really are predestined by God and elected by God. I respect their position very strongly because they represent their understanding of passages of Scripture that are very clear. And yet there's something else in there that is of interest. And that's the fact that when we look at the, at the Bible as a whole, we find that God is not limiting himself. So when Jesus says that uh, those that you have given me, he's not saying, Father, I know you have excluded some. Because what I hear elsewhere is Jesus saying to the disciples or saying to Nicodemus and his disciples, God so loved the world. Not some people. God so loved the world. Not just a few. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And Paul wrote to Timothy and said, simply that fact that God wills all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Again, I don't want you to think that I'm attacking people of a different theological persuasion. There is no attack intended. I'm simply explaining to you what I believe is here in this passage when he says that God has given these people to him. Now, there's another thing that has to be grasped, and that's the simple fact that you and I cannot come unless God actually draws us. That's what Jesus also taught. No one comes unless the Father draws him. And were it not for the drawing of God, we would not be interested at all. This is why as you watch what happens in the secularization of our society, you find more and pe more people totally deaf in their ears to the words of Scripture, to the love of God. Sin comes to the place where really it just simply blocks our willingness to hear or our desire to even know. God is active in our lives. You may not be a Christian this morning, but I want to tell you this, that God loves you and more than loves you, God has not ceased again and again to draw you to himself. In so many different ways, he does that because his love is not for a few of us, 
His love is for all of us. And that love reaches out. And Jesus says, I've manifested the Father to those whom the Father has given. And you know, that's true. Unless you and I are drawn by the Father, how can we ever know him? It is his ministry that pulls us. But the third thing came as I read this chapter, and that's that Jesus' ministry was such that we might know the truth. That's what he said of the disciples. Fathers, I've given them the word that they might know the truth. They might know in truth. Well, when you go back, and I've shared this sometimes with us as a congregation, if you go back to Genesis and begin reading, what you will discover is that almost from the beginning, and certainly through the Old Testament and right into the New Testament, you'll discover this little phrase again and again, that you may know, that you may know, that you may know. After the first service, someone came up to me and said, I've been reading Ezekiel, and you know, I've been underlining in Ezekiel every time the phrase occurs, and it's there, not just simply in Ezekiel, it's, it occurs throughout the law. It occurs through the prophets. It comes into the New Testament that we might know. God reveals himself to us so that there might be a relationship established between us. And it is a relationship based not on the figment of our imagination, but the revelation of himself. In truth, Jesus says, they might know. But know what? What is it that God wants us to know? Well, if you look at the Gospels and you look back through the Old Testament, he wants us to know that he is the God who is. In fact, the name Yahweh is often interpreted, uh, uh, he will be who he will be. It comes from the verb, as many scholars believe, meaning to be. He is the God who is. And so Jesus came to reveal him through God through himself so that people can see that God is. And the miracles that were performed, the signs that were given, all of the things that Jesus did were all intended to be helps for people to see that God is. But not that only that he is, but that he may be found by all who seek him. And that I found to be true over the years of my ministry, that people who want to know him, he will meet them. That if we seek for him with all of our hearts, we will find him. So there is no one in this room today who cannot know God, who cannot enter into relationship with God, not because of anything that we may do as a church or anything else, but because God, by his own initiative, reaching out to you and me, and through the spirit that is now present among us and working in us, he introduces himself to us time and time again. I'm convinced that God is present far more than we think. And present, not just simply in a sanctuary. God doesn't live in this building. And that's a good thing that he doesn't because during the week, very few things go on in this room. God would be separated from our lives and separated from life in general if he lived in places like this. I know one time people thought that God lived in temples, but God never has been circumscribed by a building. God is everywhere and God is with us. And in every situation, in truth, he reveals himself to us. The problem is not so much that God doesn't reveal himself. It's that we don't have eyes to see him because we're not looking. But when we're searching for him, it's amazing to me out of personal experience how often I found that God is present when I did not really realize that he was so near. 
So as Jesus' ministry says, I've come that you might know in truth. And that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit to us now. There's a fourth thing. Being a disciple of Jesus will not be without conflict. You'll notice how there, Jesus doesn't fool with the disciples in saying, well, hey, everything is going to be great. No, we're led to believe, just looking at this prayer, that uh, our relationship with the world will always be adversarial. We'll never be at peace with, with the unbelieving world because there is that which constitutes a difference between that which we are and that which the world is. Listen and read the prayer sometimes. Jesus talks about the disciples and he says they're in the world, but they're not of the world. He says that the world has hated them because of, of the word that they have received. And that's exactly the situation that still helping, happens today. I'm not a paranoid person. I don't go around looking for problems that, that may or may not exist. It's just simply when you stop to think about it, uh, there, it cannot be other than this. The conflict between right and wrong is an eternal conflict, or it's a, it's a conflict as long as time will last through our lives. There never can be a reconciliation between good and evil. Wherever evil exists, it exists to the exclusion of the good. And wherever good is, it is to the exclusion of the evil. We can't have it both ways. One of the problems we face in church sometimes is we try to live in both worlds. We try to be a part of this world and yet a part of God's world. And to an extent, we, we do that because we are in two worlds. But when it comes to our spiritual lives, there isn't a possibility that you and I can participate in both communities. We're in one or with the other. We're not in both. And you're not in both. In one or the other, you live your life today. You will live your life when you live here, leave here. There is no compromise at this particular point because good and evil are irreconcilable. And when Jesus prays for his disciples, you notice what he says, Father, I have kept them. I have guarded them. Now he says, Father, you keep them. Keep them from the evil one. Because the battle is an unending one as far as this life is concerned. There will always be the danger signs up there and around us. And what I find in Scripture is that God has posted so many of these signs to help us to know the way. He hasn't just simply called us to walk the narrow way and the straight way. He's given us the sign, the indicators. He's posted the warnings, just like we do. You get on the interstate and, and you see a sign that says, uh, do not enter. The traffic's going the other direction. Why? Because the danger is obvious. You walk along and think, how many signs do you see in a day if you're in the public place that doesn't tell you there is a danger, be aware of it and avoid it? What does God do for us through the scripture and the revelation of himself? He is simply pointing to the fact that there is a, an adversary that we face, and there is a conflict between good and evil, and it continues in your life and in mine. And you and I live in the midst of that. We make our choices every day. We come to the decisions about which way we're going to walk, whether it's to the left or to the right, whether it's going to be this way or that way. That decision is yours. And the word for decision in Greek is crisis, crisis. Every time we make that decision, it is, an, it is a minimal thing. It is a critical decision because it's the choice between right and wrong and good and evil. 
Today, I find in our culture, we're smearing the line. We're hiding it so that, that we don't see the clear line between that which is right and wrong. And the world makes its inroads to us because constantly it seeks to draw us to that place where we ignore the signs or we have so uh, covered it over and we've made it so vague. There was a time in your life maybe where you can realize that there were things that you knew very definitely. This is right and this is wrong. But how easy it is in our living to come to the place where we can compromise ourselves. And more than that, we compromise our commitment to Jesus Christ. You see, all of this that Jesus is talking about is about a personal moral holiness in their lives. He says, Father, I sanctify myself that they may be consecrated, sanctified in the truth. And he talks to them about, and he prays to God as the Holy Father. And he would have these people to understand that the discipleship to which he has called them is a moral holiness. And we don't have the option of another way. There isn't another way. There is one. You may say, I don't like that. Well, that doesn't really make any difference, does it? It isn't a matter for you or me to like or dislike or to choose. God has set the path. He said, this is the way. Walk in it. We are commanded in Scripture not to be contaminated by, nor to be controlled by the world around us. If he is Lord, he is Lord of all. You will understand why Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship, is such a difficult book to read. Because what it says simply is this, is that God calls every one of us to a personal decision and a choice. And listen, you've made that choice, or you're making that choice. You make it when you make your decisions, and I make it when I make my decisions. There aren't exceptions to this. The holy God has set his way before us, and Jesus prays for his disciples. Sanctification is essential to their discipleship. Jesus had consecrated himself sacrificially for our redemption. What he called the disciples to is to sacrifice themselves, not to our redemption, but to the witness to a world that does not know. Take up your cross and follow, Jesus says. Be my witness. Share the news. And the gospel, the good news, is about God's purpose. And that's what he calls the disciples to see. One last one. And that is the necessity of unity within the body of believers. And I talked about that last Sunday, and I don't want you to think I'm totally hung up on it, but I am. Uh, the necessity of unity among believers. Listen to what Jesus prays. That they may be one. That the world may believe that you sent me. Unity does not mean sameness. Glance around this room and look at all the differences among us. And that's okay. We're not meant to be all automatons or gingerbread men out of the same cutter. I'm so pleased that God allows us to be who we are. And more than that, he cultivates us as individuals. And we look at our lives and we recognize there are diversity of gifts and diversity of callings. And, and we don't have to be all the same. 
but we do have to be one. You say, well, what do you mean by that? I mean just simply this, that our unity is not in our, same, our sameness. Our unity is in our koinonia. Koinonia means our fellowship. It's to be centered around the same thing. And the koinonia for us as Christians is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's what makes us unified. That's what makes us one. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is in all and through all. And as we gather around him, the unity that Jesus demanded of his disciples is discovered. And when you read the book of Acts, you can't help but see it was their commitment and their dedication to Jesus of Nazareth that bound them together so that last week when we look at their prayer of one accord, it was that that brought them to pray together. They were of the same mind, the same heart, because they had the same Lord. What a tremendous prayer this is. I do not want us to dare to believe that if Jesus were here today with us, his prayer might be vastly different. I don't think that's true. I think what he prayed for the disciples was a prayer that is not only universal, but it is timeless. It is his prayer for us today. I challenge you to take John 17 this week. Read it through a few times. But when you read it through, take it away from the context of those disciples in the upper room. Put it in the context of this church or your church or whatever it may be. And, and hear Christ praying for us at World Gospel Church exactly in these kinds of words that he prayed for the disciples. It is a prayer of consecration that is still valid in your life and mine. Would you take just a moment and would you reflect on what that might mean if today Christ were visibly present with us, physically present. He's present otherwise, but physically present. And, and he would have say to us, I want to have the closing prayer. And he would begin to pray in the words such as these we've looked at from John 17. What would that mean to us as a church and to you as an individual? Would you take just a moment and think about that. Thank you for listening. Please send any comments to Bill and Ann. Their email address is found in the show notes. We would love to hear your feedback. We encourage you to check out Bill's books listed in the show notes. We hope this time has been a blessing for you, and you will tune in next week to continue this series about prayers of the Bible on Words of Endearment with Bill Coker.